There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn with your Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 10. If you can, stand when you get that, please. First Samuel, chapter 10. Go down to verse 17. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse, alternating Old and New Testament. And we are in the book of 1 Samuel this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. And Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. When Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the baggage. So he ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. And Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house, and from, excuse me, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men were with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no pet presents, but he held his peace. Thank you for your word, Lord. Just pray, Father, that it would go into our hearts, and it would bear much fruit, and it would change our lives, because it is the only thing by your Holy Spirit that can do that. Ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. This week I read of an 87-year-old man who walked into an upscale cocktail bar. At the end of the bar sat this gorgeous blonde. Well, the old gentleman walks up to her and sits down beside her and then asks, So tell me, do I come here often? (laughs) Now, that's a terrible thing when old age steals your memory. But far worse is when we choose not to remember, especially when our forgetfulness is directed towards God himself. And this is exactly what the children of Israel have chosen to do. Look at verse 17 with me. Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. 
But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, that you have said no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. The Lord now reminds Israel how faithful he had been from the time he had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. I'd like to do a quick review of that time for us to get a better grasp of what's going on this morning. But I have to tell you, I find the foolishness and the hardness of a human heart absolutely stunning. The Lord here reminds the people of their past deliverance and how he had freed them from all their oppression. Now, these are the same people who no doubt had shouted for joy when God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. Can you imagine the euphoria that must have swept through the children of Israel as they walked out of Egypt, now a free people, after having suffered for nearly 400 years of bondage? With generations of their ancestors never knowing what it was like to be free. And yet now, just three days into their journey, the incessant whining begins. Israel's response to the spectacular deliverance from Egypt is not praise, worship, and wholehearted trust. Instead, Israel responds with grumbling, complaining, murmuring, and quarreling. No water, Moses. Where's the beef, Moses? My feet are killing me, Moses. Who died and made you, boss? Moses. Are we there yet, Moses? Wah, wah, wah. Spiritual amnesia set in quickly and covered the eyes of Israel's hearts. So soon had they forgotten God's miraculous power and his deliverance. And now this spiritual amnesia that we're speaking of and forgetting God's deliverance is a deadly disease that can affect all of us. The people of Israel on the hills of unmistakable miracles with their pockets full of Egyptian jewelry grumble at their less than five-star hotel accommodations. Now this just wasn't headache-induced grumbling or low blood sugar complaining. This was faithlessness. It is the heart that says, I know better than God does. If only he would follow my plan. But grumbling seems to span all generations. In the New Testament, God was still dealing with it. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. The disheartening thing about that verse is the word everything in the Greek means everything. We aren't left with any conditions or circumstances that would allow us to grumble. This is something that I have to work on every day and watch out for because, frankly, there are people in circumstances that cause me to want to grumble. Not you guys. In a church I used to go to many years ago, we had a lady who told me that God had sent her to be my personal thorn in the flesh. I said, sister, you're not the thorn, you're the whole bush. But enough about my need for sanctification. Back to the Bible. Now listen to one of their major complaints. This is Numbers 11.5. We remember the fish that we used to eat, free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons 
and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Leeks, onions, and garlic. It sounds to me like a recipe for indigestion, but that's neither here nor there. All they could think of was the meat, the melons, the cucumbers, the leeks, the onions, and garlic that they had in Egypt. Now, leeks and onions and garlic have a very peculiar property about them. They're the kind of food that you eat in private, but everybody knows about in public. And it's really a good thing they didn't have all that onion and garlic. Can you imagine three million cases of bad breath wandering through the desert? You would have smelled them coming long before you would have ever saw them. But what I find compelling is that there is no mention in the book of Exodus that would indicate that the children of Israel never had anything other than a slave's diet. Well, they may have had the occasional piece of fish and a clove of garlic, but they were slaves. And we know that by reading Exodus that Pharaoh was anything but kind. So the food that they had that was free is much like the food in prison that is free except that in this case they had to perform back-breaking labor to get this free food. But dwelling on their past causes them to lose perspective on reality. And my friends, sin is very much like that this morning. Sin has the unique ability to shield us from all the bad connotations and have us to only focus on what we perceive as the big fun that we used to have. We may think of all the great parties that we went to and all the good times that we had, but somehow we forget the arguments, the crying, the fistfights, and those times we actually put our face in a toilet and watch those little oxygen bubbles float up. Let me remind us that the good old days weren't always that good. I've heard it said that the good old days is simply a product of a bad old memory. But listen, when we dwell on the desire, yielding to sin only becomes a matter of time, which is why we are encouraged in Philippians 4.8 to dwell on good things. Because if God's provision is not enough, then enough will never be enough. That's how our fleshly appetites are, by the way. If we try to fulfill the lust of our flesh, we will never get enough of it. We will never satisfy the demands of the flesh because it is insatiable. I just need one more time, one more drink, one more visit to that website. But it never works that way. A good example is alcohol and drugs. Well, I used to take one drink or one pill, now it takes two and four and so on because our tolerance of the chemicals have increased. In the same way, our lustful tolerances will also behave in an ascending manner. Lust for anything, good or bad, is very much like a fire. The more you feed it, the hotter it gets, and the more that it demands. Happy is the day when we finally realize that only God has the power to truly satisfy the human heart. We only have to go back to the book of Genesis and the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel to see this. If you remember, Jacob loved Rachel but was tricked into marrying Leah first. All Leah wanted was for her husband to love her. And over the years, it was Leah, not Rachel, who gave her husband plenty of children. 
She believes that if she gives her husband enough children, he will finally love her, and she will find satisfaction in that. But to quote the great theologian Mick Jagger, she can't get no satisfaction. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. I'm probably the only pastor in America that said that this morning. But if you read through the names of her children, I heard that, and what those, what those names actually mean, they tell you the story of the disappointment and the heartache that Leah is experiencing in life. She names her first son Reuben, for the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Genesis twenty nine thirty two. She has a second son and says, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one also. Genesis twenty nine thirty three. With the third son, she says, Now last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Genesis twenty nine thirty four. With each son that she has, Leah thinks that now finally my husband will love me. Maybe now he will be attached to me. But with each child, she is left more and more disappointed. For years, Leah had put her hope in romantic love, but she continues to only feel the pain of rejection and loneliness. But then in verse 35 of that chapter, there's a compelling twist. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to this son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. This time, I will praise the Lord. She finally realized that only God can supply what she needs. And you want to know the interesting thing? If you turn to the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, you will find the family tree of Jesus. Here's what we read when the genealogy gets to this branch. We read, Jacob was the father of Judah. It's not Jacob's son, Joseph, or Benjamin, his two favorite by Rachel, that are even mentioned. Instead, it is Judah, the fourth son from a hand-me-down wife. It would seem as if even now God still remembers the heartache and tears of Leah and recorded it for all time. Verse 20, please. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he has hiding himself by the baggage. Now only the Lord and Samuel at this time knew that he had been selected and anointed as king. But Samuel wanted the tribes to realize that Jehovah was in charge of the selection process. So he had the tribes present themselves, probably represented by the elders, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then the selection by the drawing of the lot began. Now the drawing of the lot was sort of like sanctified dice, if you will. But don't think Las Vegas. It's not like Samuel's trying to roll snake eyes to get baby a new pair of shoes. No, in the Old Testament, the lot was God-ordained and God-directed. So the clan of Matri was selected next, and from that clan, the family of Kish, and finally, the young man Saul. But Saul cannot be found anywhere. 
And Samuel had to inquire further of the Lord to discover that the king, himself, the king was hiding himself among the wagons and the baggage. Maybe in a stage whisper, the Lord said, he's behind the baggage. I don't know. But this certainly was not an auspicious way for him to begin his reign. Now, was Saul hiding out of modesty or out of fear? I think probably the latter, because true humility accepts God's will while at the same time depending on God's strength and wisdom to do what he's called us to do. As Andrew Murray said, true humility is not thinking lowly of oneself. True humility is not thinking of oneself at all. Now, I think had Saul been focusing on the glory of God, he would have been present in the assembly and humbly accepted God's call upon his life. Then he would have urged the people to pray for him and to follow him as he sought to do the Lord's will. Now, the first official act on the part of Saul suggests that there is going to be quite a bit of trouble ahead. Saul was a reluctant ruler who followed his emotions instead of building up his faith. He would serve as a sacrificing and courageous soldier one day and become a self-centered autocrat the next. Now, shunning national popularity is one thing, but shunning God-given responsibility is quite another. Samuel knew that he had been chosen by God to be king. I'm sorry, Saul knew that he had been chosen by God to be king, but he hid hoping that he could avoid the task that God had given him. Now, this morning I have a question that each one of us must answer in the privacy of our own hearts. Are we hiding among the baggage as individuals and therefore corporately as a church? As we look at Saul, let's ask ourselves, can I see any similarities between Saul and myself? Am I hiding among the baggage? Now, the word for baggage in Hebrew can mean a number of different things. It includes implements, weapons, clothing, carriages, and furniture. It includes the things that we carry around with us. We would say today, the things that we possess. And just like the real baggage that Saul was hiding among was not the baggage that hit him, but rather the baggage that he carried along with him wherever he went. Baggage that would make him hesitate to accept the task that God had given him and would also effectively hinder him from carrying out that task. It's not easy to carry baggage around with us, is it? Later the Apostle Paul would write, Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not count myself as laying hold of anything yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes all we can do is forget the past and start living for today and for the future. Maybe that's why the Lord brought you here this morning, to remind you and encourage you to leave your baggage behind. Leave the baggage of the past that weighs you down behind. It's a new day today, and the old you is gone. You are here this morning for such a time as this. So learn from your past and move ahead with confidence in God's power, forgiveness, and provision. Go all out in answering God's call upon your life because no one can answer that call 
but you. It's time for us all to leave our baggage behind. Verse 23, please. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own house. It's almost humorous, really. They had to literally grasp a hold of him and physically bring him out from hiding. Now, some of the old commentaries say that's because he was being humble and modest. Personally, I think that's a stretch. I don't think he was being humble. I think he was being a coward. This is a clear example, as we will see throughout this book, of Saul's main problem. He is driven, first and foremost, by his emotions. In this case, fear is the issue. He is afraid. Now, why should Saul be afraid of being the king, you may be thinking? It would seem to be a nice position. Well, first off, as king, he would be required to lead his people in battle. And the calling of God is not enough for him to overcome this fear. The miracles that Samuel had shown him to demonstrate that God is the one calling him was once again not enough to overcome his fear. Saul has allowed his fear to rule over him. And this will become a pattern in Saul's life. Where was he when Goliath came and challenged the children of Israel? He was in his tent, shaking in his sandals. Secondly, though, he knew that if Israel chose a king, that the newly chosen leader would certainly anger the Philistines who were still seeking to rule over them. His promotion as king would certainly start a new campaign of Philistine raids. The Philistines would consider this as a provocation for war, and Saul knew that he may be, even be the target of paid assassins. The interesting thing to me, though, this morning is his reputation had been built on things that people look at and people like. He was popular, but he had no substance to back it up. And now it was time to back it up. God gave the people exactly what they wanted. And then he immediately pulled off the mask. They chose a man who looked strong, yet he was a coward. They chose a man who was pretty to look at, but now he's hiding his pretty little face among the baggage. So they drag him back, stand him up, and Samuel now presents him to the people. And I think perhaps verse 24 is the greatest indictment of them all. After all of this, the people should have seen their sin. They should have seen how horrible it was to look to any earthly king instead of looking to God himself. They should have seen this, and they should have turned away and then followed God once again. When Saul stood before them, they should have seen, that all, they should have seen all of that and finally turned to God in repentance. But they didn't. What did they do instead? They shouted, God save the king. This was the first time that cry, God save the king, was ever uttered. And as you know, it is still used today in modern England whenever a king is on the throne. But literally, the original text has the people asking for God to make them a king who would live for a long time. And Samuel told the children of Israel about the manner of the kingdom, it says, and he wrote it in a book. 
On the basis of this, most scholars believe that Samuel wrote the first part of the book of 1 Samuel because Samuel dies in chapter 25. And all the Bible scholars are pretty sure he didn't write nothing after that. The journey of Saul from his home and back again was just a small episode in Israel's history. The whole thing took just a few days. It's a tiny fragment of world history. However, in this, we have been given the secret of the kingdom. The word of God that was spoken to Saul will turn out to be the most powerful factor, not only in his own life, not in Israel's life, but in the history of the whole world. Because you see, a day eventually would come when another man, not very far from the scene of 1 Samuel chapter 11, would would come saying, the kingdom of God is now at hand. The kingdom of God, which was a real concern of the word of God spoken by Samuel to Saul, eventually came into this world in the person and work of Christ himself. And before long, that whole secret would come out. A message that has been known as the word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom would soon be proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire and then to the ends of the whole earth. Look at verse 26 with me. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant man whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any presents, but he kept silent. Saul's hometown was notorious in Israel's recent history. A terrible rape and murder had occurred in Gibeah that we find in Judges 19 and had led to a bloody conflict between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of the tribes of Israel. The Hebrew word there for worthless men is Belial, and it means literally without a yoke, or in other words, without something or someone above you in the sense of authority. It's an expression that is used to describe something that is totally useless. Now, why are they useless? Because they have rejected all authority. Even though we know with hindsight that Saul was a poor king, he was the man that God had chosen And he had the opportunity to truly serve God had he not kept giving in to his emotions. But these troublemaking rebels would have rejected anybody as their king. They were in the habit of rejecting authority. And so they did not bring any gifts. They also offered criticism that was neither constructive nor helpful. Let me tell you this morning, whenever we try to serve God, There will always be people just like that. Whenever a light is turned on to light up the dark, the bugs are also drawn to that light. And the same story is being told in our world today. There are those who are children of Belial, fools who say, how can Jesus save us? On the other hand, there were wise men who came from a long way away to bring gifts to him. And this morning, we are invited to join their company. What gifts can we bring? The three wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The three gifts which correspond to Christ's office. Gold is the medal of monarchy. We know Jesus is the king of kings. Frankincense burned at the temple speaks of the priestly ministry. Jesus, of course, being our high priest. And myrrh, which was used in the burial process, speaks of a martyrdom of a prophet. Jesus is the incomparable prophet. But we too can bring gold to Jesus. We can bring the gold of our tithes and our offerings. We can bring the gold of our faith. 
We can bring the gold of the words that we speak to each other to encourage one another. We too can bring frankincense to Christ. The word frankincense means whiten, most likely due to the fact that when it was burned, the smoke would ascend in white puffs. Now, frankincense comes from a very small tree that requires very little soil to, go, to grow, but rather roots itself deep in the rocks. And isn't that a lot like us? We're small indeed also, but we can root ourselves in the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 tells us that the frankincense burned by the priest speaks of prayer. And as we bring our gift of prayer and sacrifice of praise to the Lord, not only are they a sweet-smelling savor to him, but we are also whitened and purified in that process. We, too, can bring myrrh to Christ. He didn't ask us to build a monument or erect an impressive tower in his honor. He simply asked us to remember what he has done when we come to the table. As we partake of the blood and the body at the communion table, we remember his work on the cross for our behalf. And our doing so is myrrh to him. As it is today, though, many foolish men also will bring no gifts to Christ. But wise is the man and wise is the woman who brings gifts to the King of Kings, our great priest and our martyred prophet. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. By his grace and mercy, he has reached out to fools like us, and all that remains for us to do is respond to that. Now, as King Saul could have dealt very severely with them, but he held his peace. And yet later, he was going to kill his son Jonathan just because he had eaten some honey. Saul's emotional instability would have him weeping over David one day and trying to kill him the very next day. But to his credit, on this particular day, Saul was not going to let others reign on his parade. He wasn't about to get into a shouting match with them, pit his newfound supporters against the troublemakers, or even quit or protest for lack of support. He held his peace. The verb for keep silent is from the Hebrew word for pottery. By implication, he refused to screech like a piece of pottery that is scratching down a wall. He did not want to make noise, cry foul, or get even. The proverb proved to be true that tells us a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. When the troublemaker's chorus grew, Saul shut his mouth, turned a deaf ear, and, chose, and closed a blind eye to all of their refrain. He did not bother to tell them and the others his side of the story or cite the divine and prophetic mandate before others. You know what? Trying to impress people with our physique, personality, and property is always immature. People say if you have it, flaunt it. But a mature Christian is free from hypocrisy, guile, and vainglory. There's an old saying that says, if we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. One black preacher said, his grandma used to say, be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, then you ain't who you is. I don't know what that means. I just like saying it. But my friends, if we expect to do anything significant in this world, you have to go into it knowing you will be criticized. Winston Churchill said, the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. 
Whenever I counsel young men wanting to go into the ministry, this is one of the first things that I tell them. You have to be prepared going into it to receive criticism, both fair and unfair. And sometimes it's impossible to please everyone. For example, the thermostat. No matter, no matter what temperature I set it on, someone in here hates my guts. I guess I better shut up because now I'm complaining. Come back next week or I will poke your eyes out. Read ahead to find out why I said that. Lord, so thankful for your word. So thankful, Lord, that uh, you have called us to salvation. That we have purpose in our lives. That our past is forgiving. Our present is purposeful. And our future is bright. Write that upon the tablets of our heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Since Jean-